Good morning, church family. Uh, as you can see from the fact that I am not standing in the sanctuary right now, um, but I'm standing in our little makeshift recording studio, um, I'm approaching this sermon a little bit differently. You know, normally we record uh, the sermon at the same time we record the rest of the worship service, which is Thursday night. Uh, but this is one of those weeks where I knew that uh, given everything that's happening, there would be a lot that is transpiring every day at this point, and a lot would happen between Thursday night and Sunday morning. And so I wanted to try to preach as close as I could to the time when you would actually be listening um, this morning. So at the time of my preaching the sermon, which is about midday Saturday, um, the election has been called for Joe Biden. Um, looks like Donald Trump will be challenging and contesting some of that. And so it very well could be that we are in for some chaotic weeks, even months ahead, as all this gets sorted. Um, on top of that chaos, we have the chaotic environment that we were already in with the global pandemic and ups and downs of the markets, financial instability, physical isolation, social unrest. And that is why, as I've been saying every week, I am so thankful that we are together this fall studying the book of Revelation. Because I've been saying week by week that no other book gives us as big, as clear, as realistic of a picture of the person of Jesus, which is what we most need right now. I hope that you are coming to believe, as I do, that this book helps us to be extremely well-equipped for moments of confusion and disorientation like the one that we are in right now, because no other book helps us to be first as realistic about the trials and tribulations that we will face as Christians uh, in this broken world, but also this book helps us to be incredibly hopeful about how this world will eventually be renewed and rescued. So this morning, uh, let's turn to our reading. Uh, we are now in what's called the Cycles of Seven. We looked at the, se the seven uh, seals the last couple of weeks, then we'll be today looking at the seven trumpets, and then next, uh, in a little bit, we'll be looking at the seven bowls. Today, we're looking at a portion of the vision of the trumpets, which is John's second vision. And it starts in chapter eight and nine uh, with the blowing of the seven trumpets. And remember what we've been saying week by week, um, these visions, these seven visions, um, are not chronological developments. They don't happen one after the other. It's like a new camera angle in the slow motion action replay of the same time period between the first and second coming of Christ. So this third vision of John of the seven trumpets is just a replay of the same time period as he talked about with the vision of the seven seals. It's just giving us a new perspective on it. So just like with the opening of the scrolls, with each blow of the trumpet, uh, some new calamity uh, is emerging, some catastrophe comes forth. It's the same terrible realities as the four horsemen. God is allowing the repercussions of sin and evil to take their course in the world. And all this is in hopes that rebellious humanity would repent, repent of our idolatry and our rebellion and turn back to God. But chapter nine ends with the blowing of the sixth trumpet and with a real heaviness because humanity remains in rebellion and God's judgment is coming. And it seems that the world is stuck and trapped in evil and 
what is God going to do? But then we come to chapters 10 and 11, the chapters that we're looking at today, which is the interlude between the blowing of the sixth and seventh trumpet. And here in these chapters, we see that God has a secret weapon. God has a secret weapon for how he will deal with the entrenched rebellion of the world. Uh, you remember uh, the great movie Karate Kick, the original uh, Karate Kid movie, uh, and there was that final scene where um, Daniel LaRusso is fighting Johnny Lawrence, uh, and it looks like Daniel is is gonna lose. Uh, his leg has been taken out, and he's just hobbling along, and he doesn't. He you know we just think he's gonna lose, but of course he has a secret weapon, and the secret weapon is the crane kick, the the famous crane kick. So in the same way, friends, uh, we see it, it looks that all is lost. It looks that, that, that humanity is entrenched in the rebellion, that the world is trapped in evil, and that God's judgment is coming, and yet God has a secret weapon. And what is his secret weapon? It is the Lamb of God and the people of God. The Lamb of God and the people of God. So let's, let's, let's read uh, this chapter, chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 15. I we'll invite you to read, read along with me. Um, let's praise before we read. Father, we thank you uh, for the word of God, that it gives us such a realistic picture about the world that we live in, this chaotic world that we live in. And we pray now that you would illumine the word of God as we read, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, responding to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word, Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for about 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. 
If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, and language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet in terror, struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe was coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On Friday, uh, just, just this past Friday, uh, I did my normal Friday morning run with a little running group that I run with. And this particular morning, I was trying to keep up with the fastest guys, uh, but I couldn't keep up, and they were uh, pretty far ahead of me. And we took a, a route that we had never taken before, and because the fact that it was very early and very dark, combined with the fact that I am profoundly directionally challenged, um, I ended up just very lost. <laughs> I was very lost. I didn't know where I was. Um, I was completely turned around. I didn't know whether I was going east or west or north or south, um, just completely confused and lost. But one thing I did know, I did know where I was supposed to end up, that we were ending the run at Mary Munford Elementary School. And so what I did is I just kept finding familiar markers along the way, uh, slowly making my way back and finally ending up in our ultimate destination. I kept focusing on the finish. Friends, this is a time of immense confusion and immense disorientation. Um, some of us may end up happy about the election results. Some of us may be disappointed and upset but for all of us, all of us, we find ourselves in a country that is profoundly divided, uh, that is deeply locked in conflict. We find ourselves continue to be trapped in a pandemic with rising numbers. We are socially separated. We're facing an uncertain winter, an uncertain year. Frankly, we all feel disoriented and a little bit in the dark. And so what are we supposed to do? And here's what I want to suggest. Just like when I was confused and disoriented on Friday morning in the dark, what we do is we focus on the destination. We keep our eyes on where we are going, where our ultimate destination will be, where we'll end up. We keep our eyes on our hope, our hope. And what is our destination? What is our hope? Well, look with me at chapter 11, verse 15. It says this, 
the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you know um, Handel's amazing piece of music, the Messiah that we sing, uh, we sing the Hallelujah Chorus, you know, every Easter, every Christmas. And you know that wonderful refrain, that, that great climax that centers on this verse, that he shall reign forever and ever. That, that's our hope. We're singing about it at that moment. That is our ultimate destination, that where the world is heading, where we are heading. And what is it? It is the kingdom of God. It is a vision of the future, a vision of the world that God is bringing about. It is not a vision of us escaping to heaven. It is a vision of heaven coming to reclaim the earth. It is foreseeing a day when the kingdom of the world, that is uh, this current world order of evil and sin and brokenness and suffering and injustice and death, when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This is a fulfillment of every time we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where we are heading, friends. This is our destination, a redeemed and renewed and rescued creation, God's kingdom. Now you might ask, well, doesn't God already rule? Doesn't God's kingdom already exist? Yes, well, that's what we've been looking at. Revelation four and five, uh, those two great chapters that we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw the throne room of God. We saw where God is seated on the throne, where he shares it with the lamb, with Jesus. God is already ruling, he's already reigning, his kingdom is already established. And yet, as we know, the kingdom of God is always continuously, right now, contested by the kingdom of the world. You know this, even in your life, uh, there are ways in which you resist and you rebel against the rule and the reign of God in your own life. Our personal lives and the lives of the nations are characterized right now by this clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of the world against the kingdom of God. But Revelation reminds us is that there is coming a day when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And they will no longer be in conflict. They will be one and the same when God will judge and destroy all that destroys. And he will heal and redeem everything that is wrong, all sickness and sorrow and division and death. And Jesus will reign forever and ever. That is our hope. What a vision. What a destination. What a finality. What a conclusion and a hope that we are heading for. Now, as followers of Jesus, I think all followers of Jesus may agree that this is indeed our hope, the kingdom of God. And yet the trickier question is, how do we get there? How does the kingdom come? And what are we supposed to do in the meantime? What's our role in this world? What's our responsibility as followers of Jesus right now when it comes to the kingdom of God? I think that's a harder question that, that Christians often disagree about. And before we look at how our passage in Revelation answers that question, let's look at two general approaches that God's people have taken throughout the ages. The first approach is what I'll call passive withdrawal. Passive withdrawal. You know, in the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish community called the Essenes, the Essenes, that pursued this strategy of passive withdrawal. They believed that Jerusalem uh, and the temple had become hopelessly corrupt. They didn't see how any actions that they took would make any positive difference, and so they moved away from the city 
into the desert to live in caves. And there they practiced intense devotion to God and to his law as they waited patiently for God to come and judge the world and establish his kingdom. Those were the Essenes. Now, there have been Christian movements throughout the ages that have basically pursued variations on this same approach of withdrawal. Uh, They've seen the world as hopelessly corrupt. They've pursued a strategy of withdrawal so that they can then focus on their own purity and faithfulness as we await the coming judgment. And, you know, we got to admit there's some appeal to this approach. I mean, just forming little pockets of light in a world of darkness. You don't have to waste your energy on trying to change or challenge the broader society. It just really is just focusing on being communities of faithfulness. But the problem with this withdrawal approach is its inward focus. It guts the church of its mission, and it can can create communities that can be very legalistic and puritanical as we focus on ourselves. So passive withdrawal is not the church's calling as we await and seek the kingdom. Approach number two is what I'm going to call forceful winning. Forceful winning. You know, also in Jesus' time, there was another group that was very different from the Essenes, and they were called the Zealots. And the Zealots also, like the Essenes, were longing for God's kingdom to come, but rather than withdraw from the world to wait for it, they pursued a plan to overthrow the Roman occupiers through violence and military force. They hoped that they could bring about God's kingdom through the exercise of raw political and military power. They sought to use the power of the state and power of violence to bring about God's kingdom. And history is full of Christian movements that have pursued this same basic strategy through the direct exercise of power. So throughout history, you think of things like the Crusades or the Inquisition that sought to expand God's kingdom through violence and war. Uh, Think of more modern movements like uh, moral majority movements that are seeking to use the force of policy and legislation to make the kingdom come. And this way makes a lot of sense to us because it's the way that earthly kingdoms tend to work. You know, with countries in war, it's the country with the biggest army that can overpower the other country that wins. In, in sports, it's the team with the strongest offense that can overpower the other team that wins. In, in business, the company with the strongest economic position takes control of the weaker. This is how earthly kingdoms win. But this way of forceful winning has a big problem when it comes to God's people. Because whenever the church colludes with power, it becomes corrupted. It becomes what Revelation calls Babylon or Sodom or Egypt, the great city. It becomes characterized by idolatry and injustice, just like the system it is trying to change. And the church might succeed, and it often has, in gaining all kinds of political power, but it's always at the expense of its integrity. It ends up utterly compromised, usually indistinguishable from the world that it is wanting to change. And so neither of these ways, the way of passive withdrawal nor the way of forceful winning, is the faithful way as we wait for the kingdom. So what is the faithful way? What is the way that followers of Jesus are called to do as we seek and wait for the kingdom of God? Well, let's look at what this section of Revelation is teaching us 
And here, I'll just go ahead and tell you the answer that I think it is, that it's not the way of passive withdrawal, nor the way of forceful winning, but it is the way of suffering witness. Suffering witness. Where do we see that in our text? Well, I can only note a few things. This is a very, this is known to be actually the most complicated two chapters in the book of Revelation. <laughs> um, I can't, I can cover only a very few details. Maybe I'll do a podcast or a bonus sermon to do it more in depth. But let me just note just a few details this morning. First of all, take a look at chapter 10. Uh, there's this uh, amazing image of, of this angel. I like to call him the giant rainbow angel. Uh, you see him in there? Um, giant rainbow angel is straddling the earth, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and it says he's holding a scroll in his right hand. Now, it seems pretty clear that this is the same scroll from Revelation chapter 5 that held all the mysteries of history, but it now is just little, because I think, because it's being held by a giant rainbow angel, right? But it's the same scroll. And now notice that his hand is open and the scroll is lying open. Why? Because the Lamb of God has broken the seven seals and the scroll is now ready to be read. And then look what it says in verse 7 of chapter 10. The mystery of God will now be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The mystery, the mystery of God, the mystery of God's purposes is about to be revealed. And what is it? It is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, you will now be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. See, friends, this is the mystery of the scroll. God's purposes for the world and for the nations have finally been made known. And what is it? It is the good news about Jesus. It is that Jesus, God's son, has come into the world, has taken the sin and rebellion of creation and humanity upon himself, that he has lived for us and died for us and risen for us. And as a result, he has opened the family of God to all the nations. This is the mystery of God now revealed in Christ. And so the scroll is open, which represents the good news. And now John, the servant of God, is given the scroll. You see that? He's told to eat the scroll. Which, which sounds a little funny, doesn't it, kids? Like eat um, a, a scroll of paper. But yet it's a symbol of being given the authority to speak the words of the scroll. He's told to prophesy in verse 11, which just means to preach or proclaim to the peoples and nations and languages and kings of the earth. And so what we see here is that it is the calling of God's people represented by John to be proclaimers, witnesses to the person of Jesus to the nations, to represent the good news, to speak the good news, to announce the good news to all the nations of the earth. This text is very similar to one of the most famous missionary texts in the Bible, which is Acts chapter 1-8. You might remember that text there. It's after Jesus's resurrection, before his ascension. He's with his disciples in Acts 1-8. He says, he says, I will, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be given power from the Spirit to be my witnesses in all Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says, you will get power. Yeah, you want power? You'll get power. But it will not be to take over. It is not power to fight. It is not power to control. It is power to be my 
witnesses. This is what I'm sending you to do, not to create my kingdom, not to build my kingdom, not to wait around for my kingdom, but to witness to me and to my kingdom. Friends, that's what we're called to be, witnesses. That's what we're called to do in this in-between time. Be witnesses. And what is a witness? It is simply a person who testifies to the truth. It implies the language of trial, doesn't it? And who is on trial? Well, not us, not the church. Otherwise, we'd be called defendants. We're called witnesses. And what witnesses do is they provide evidence for another. So who is on trial? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is on trial for claiming to be king. He is on trial before the world for claiming to, to bring another kingdom, for claiming to die for sin, for claiming to, to have the power to set the world free from evil, for claiming to be the Lord of all, the very center of reality. Jesus is calling us, his people, to be witnesses, to provide the evidence to the world that Jesus is truly Lord, that the claims about him are true. So the issue is not us, it's not me, it's not the church, it is Jesus Christ. He is the one and we are simply witnesses. Friends, this is your true vocation that shapes all your other responsibilities, whether you are a teacher or an engineer or a student or a lawyer or a banker or a software developer or a carpenter or an artist or a stay-at-home parent, you are a witness. You are one who is sent to point to Jesus and his kingdom with your words, your deeds, and your very lives. That's what we're called to do. But that's not the whole of it. It's not just our responsibility to be witnesses, but to be suffering witnesses. And we get the first hint of that in chapter 10, when John is given the scroll to eat. It says that the scroll is sweet to the taste, like honey, but it gives him a, a, a bellyache. It's sour in the stomach. And this is a symbol that speaks of the fact that as witnesses, we're given these sweet words, these amazing words of the gospel, that is amazing words of God's love for the world, and yet the message is again and again met with rejection and bitterness from others. And we've seen this. We watch family members and friends and loved ones turn away from Jesus, sometimes even turn away from us. The burden that the witness carries is that we know the sweetness of the gospel even as it causes division and sometimes trouble, more trouble in our lives than we would ever want. And this theme of suffering only intensifies in chapter 11. We're introduced to the two witnesses in chapter 11, verse 3. These two witnesses are yet another symbol of the church. And these two witnesses are called to prophesy, to proclaim the good news. And they do it wearing sackcloth, which represents their humility and the message of repentance that they are bringing to the nations. And they have, you can see in verse 5 and 6, they have tremendous authority and power from God, like Elijah and Moses. And yet, on the other hand, as they testify to Jesus, bad things happen. The terrible beast emerges from the abyss. We'll meet this beast more later. We'll meet this, this beast more later. Uh, and, and this beast kills them. And their bodies are thrown into the street. And the people of the nations mock them and refuse them burial because these two witnesses have been a great torment to them. And all of this is a symbol, of course, which is communicating that faithful witnesses will always meet opposition and hostility. Why will we face hostility? Because the gospel confronts idolatry. It confronts injustice. The witness holds up an alternative vision of God and the world and the good life. And, and, and it utterly, utterly, the gospel contradicts the world. 
in its ideologies and isms, whether it's individualism or relativism or racism or materialism or militarism, the good news of Jesus and his kingdom is bad news for everything that is inconsistent with it. And so let me just tell you this. If you just keep on pointing to Jesus, if you keep faithfully being his witness to him and his kingdom while living in this world, you will find yourself in trouble. And so we get this sobering lesson here. We are called to be witnesses for Jesus, but witnesses for Jesus are called to suffer, to give up their lives, and even to die. In fact, the word for witness in this text is the Greek word martis, from where we get our word martyr, one who was killed for speaking the truth. And yet here's the incredible thing about it. Chapter 11, verse 11 says, after three and a half days, the witnesses are raised from the dead, symbolizing the unstoppability of the church's mission. And then God raises the witnesses to heaven, symbolizing their vindication and victory. And this tells us that the victory of the witness actually comes through loss. The triumph of the witness comes through their dying. The power of the witness is in their suffering. And the final victory that we see in chapter 11, 15, when God heals creation, brings in the nations, inaugurates his kingdom, this happens not because God's people have stood around waiting for it, not because they have taken the kingdom by power and military force, it happens because they have faithfully witnessed to Jesus and willingly borne the cost. They have suffered, they have died, they've given themselves away. And God uses the suffering of his people to bring about the redemption of the nations. This is the way of God's people, the way of the suffering witness. Now, friends, we shouldn't be surprised at this. We shouldn't be surprised at this because this is the same way of our Savior, Jesus. Remember Revelation chapter 4 and 5? Uh, the great warrior of God is announced, the one who can open the scrolls, the Lion of Judah. And when John looks to see the lion, he sees what? A little slain lamb. Jesus is able to break the seals of the scroll, not because he triumphs as a lion, but because he suffers as a lamb. His power is carried out not by taking control, but by losing control, losing his very life for the sake of the world. Jesus himself is the suffering witness. He is the lamb. In his wonderful book, uh, Strong and Weak, Andy Crouch talks about the tension between authority and vulnerability and how rare it is to see those two traits embodied in a single person. In fact, to most of us, they seem like a contradiction. He notes that when almost every human leader grows in authority, they move away from vulnerability. They insulate themselves from risk, they amass power, and they flee from weakness. And one of the things actually that is in common between the passive withdrawal approach and the forceful winning approach is that both seek to maintain control or power without experiencing vulnerability and weakness. Yet in the slain lamb, we see the most astonishing thing. We see Jesus revealing his total authority as king, sharing the throne of God, but we see him embracing vulnerability, embracing suffering and death. Jesus exemplifies a completely different model of power, a different vision of authority, authority that embraces vulnerability for the sake of love. This is how true power works. And this is the power 
for us as witnesses. Our power as witnesses does not come through taking control, not through manipulation and power grabs, not through politics or violence or force. Our power comes through suffering love, through giving ourselves away for others, through giving our time and our money and our resources and our lives, through loving our enemies and serving them, through surrendering our control rather than seizing it, through bearing evil for others. This is the way of the witness because this is the way of the Lamb. You know, I, I, I admit as a Star Wars fan that I love uh, that, that, that new show, The Mandalorian. I know that some of you have seen it as well. It's about this uh, elite class of warriors in the Star Wars universe who share a high moral code in the way that they order their lives. And the different Mandalorians remind each other of this code by simply saying the words, this is the way. This is the way. And for the follower of Jesus, the way of the Lamb is the way for us. And what is the way? It is the cruciform way. It is the way of suffering. It is the way of sacrifice. It is the way of substitutionary love. This is the way because it is the way of the Lamb. So let me just make a couple of closing exhortations here as we move into yet another, um, who knows what lies ahead of us this week. First of all, let us remember our hope. Remember your hope. Our hope is actually a political hope, but it is not a Republican hope. It is not a Democratic hope. It is a kingdom hope. It is for the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Jesus did not come to take sides with political parties or worldly kingdoms. In fact, Jesus did not come to take sides at all. He came to take over as king. And we've seen that human political power is an anemic vehicle for carrying out the agenda of Jesus. In fact, history has shown the more power Christians tend to have, the more misguided and conformed to the world we often become. So in the coming days, we hold on to hope in the kingdom of Jesus and the king himself. So if things haven't gone your way this week uh, and you are unhappy, uh, just take a breath. We only have one Messiah uh, and he did not lose the election. Or if things did go your way this week and you're happy, uh, again, look to Jesus. Have some perspective. We only have one king, and he did not win the election. This election and this moment in history uh, will also, with all others, be relegated to the dust of human history. But the kingdom of Jesus endures forever. He shall reign forever and ever. So in all the confusion and disorientation, remember where we are heading. The kingdom is our hope. Remember your hope. But the second thing is, remember the way. Remember the way to the kingdom. How should we be spending our lives the next four years, the next eight years, the next 20 years, the next 80 years, the next 800 years, however long till Jesus reigns on this earth? Well, not by withdrawing from the culture, by avoiding everything that's hard. Uh, not by trying to take over the culture, trying to forcefully win back power. Our calling is to be suffering witnesses. And for some, this might mean literal death. It meant death for Polycarp, who was burned at the stake in the second century for refusing to deny Jesus. It meant death for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed for working against a destructive regime. Uh, it meant death for Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated for speaking out against the idolatry of racism and segregation. It has meant death for many Christian leaders in Iran, even the last few years, who continue to speak boldly about Jesus in a hostile land. But for many of us, it will not mean literal death, but it still means death. 
Because as, as we wait for the kingdom, we go the way of the suffering witness. It means we eat the scroll. We let the work of Jesus do its transforming work inside of us. It means we bear the cost of speaking and representing the gospel in the world. It means we put on sackcloth and repent of our own idolatry and injustice and complacency and compromise. It means we seek to form countercultural communities, gathering in people from every tribe, tongue, and language. It means we side with the low and the least and the last and the lost. It means we die to our own agendas and desires and ambitions, loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, loving the poor, all the while speaking boldly and humbly about Jesus the King. This is the way of the suffering witness. This has been the way of the church in every age, in every nation, in every political environment in history. This is our calling. We are not at home in any country, and yet we are at home in every country. Christians are like cockroaches, <laughs> thriving and flourishing in every place under heaven, from the age of Caesar to Nero to the Taliban to the kings of Europe to the United States. We do not need political power to do this work. We do not need the backing of the state to carry out the quiet revolution of the suffering king. We only need one thing. We need Jesus himself, the power of the spirit, who he gives to us in abundance even now. We have the power through the weakness of our crucified Lord, who is now reigning. We have in him all the power we will ever need. This is the way, the way of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our incredible hope. Thank you that Jesus has lived and died and risen and is now ascended and reigning. Thank you that the kingdom is already started. Thank you that right now you are reigning on the throne and that while we live in this still broken world, while the kingdom of the worlds clash against the kingdom of Christ, thank you that we know the end of the story. We know our ultimate destination. We know that you shall reign forever. Help us now as we wait for the kingdom to come. Keep us faithful to you. Keep us looking to Jesus, taking his good news into our souls. Keep us repenting, recognizing our own idolatry and complacency and compromise, turning from sin and idols and turning to Christ. Keep us faithful, not passively withdrawing or forcefully trying to win, but persevering as suffering witnesses, going the way of Jesus, the Lamb. Let us not run from vulnerability, but be willing to lose time and money and power and control in order to point to Jesus and his kingdom. Help us to love our enemies and to serve them. Help us to live differently, rejecting materialism and individualism and injustice. Keep us speaking boldly and humbly about the gospel. Would you pray for our country as this election continues to unfold? Thank you for the relative peace that we've experienced this week and continue, please, we pray, restrain evil, promote peace, we pray for Donald Trump. We pray for Joe Biden. We pray for all those who have been and will be elected, that they would govern wisely, that they would do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you. We pray for the nations, that you would continue to gather people from all nations to yourself. We pray for family members and neighbors and friends, especially those who have not yet trusted in Christ. We pray for the global church, especially for our brothers and sisters who are truly suffering, bearing the cost, of witnessing to Jesus. Give them strength and perseverance. May they know their labor is not in vain. Help us not to despair of hope. Keep us looking to Jesus in his kingdom as our singular hope. Lead us in the way of the Lamb. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior.
who taught us to pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.